Welcome to episode 161 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thank you for joining us. Stuart Baker is traveling this week, so this is Alan Cohn, and we are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. So for this episode of the News Roundup, I'm joined by Maury Shank, former managing partner of Steptoe's London office and now advisor to Steptoe on European technology and cybersecurity issues as well as a private private equity investor and director of technology companies. Thanks, Maury, for joining us. Happy to be with you. And I'm Alan Cohn, formerly the Assistant Secretary for Strategy at the Department of Homeland Security and now of counsel here at Steptoe. So as long as we have you today, Maury, let's talk some about what's going on in the EU. Uh, and first, I think there's an order uh, to Google to turn over foreign data that's accessible from the U.S. Can you tell us about this? Well, a magistrate judge in California has ruled that Google has to turn over information that it can access uh, from the United States under the Stored Communications Act, which is the opposite way that the Second Circuit ruled, including uh, on bank, um, or den- denial of rehearing on bank in the Microsoft Ireland case, where they said that the stored communication data did not apply to information that Microsoft held in Ireland. The judge in California um, said that she agreed with the dissenters from the denial of rehearing. And among other things, she said that Google uses algorithmic methods for deciding where it stores data, where Microsoft's data stored in Ireland was more closely associated with foreign customers. Uh, But we've got a circuit split here, although there, um, there hasn't been, to my knowledge, a Ninth Circuit ruling on this. But at some point, uh, probably the Supreme Court is going to have to decide this issue. Yeah, that's what it would seem now. There's a couple of steps to go if this is just a magistrate's ruling. But um, how much do you see uh, the magistrate trying to distinguish here? And how much do you see you know, the magistrate really trying to set this up for a fight? Well, I think it was a little of both. I mean, she said she specifically agreed with the center. Um, who said that if there's not a constitutional barrier, then it doesn't compel the ruling of the Second Circuit. On the other hand, um, she did distinguish uh, the Microsoft's more uh, location-based, uh, customer location-based approach to storage. So um, I think it's a little of both. But I, I think there is a conflict here that's going to have to be resolved somehow. Whoever resolves it could uh find a distinction, though, along the lines of what the magistrate found here. Yeah, and that's interesting. And it'd be interesting to to see how much of the industry uses location-based uh, storage versus how much uh, is using more algorithmically driven uh, storage decisions. Yes, and I, I don't know what the answer to that is. There was another case that went, I believe, another... Uh, a New York court was unwilling to help Facebook on this issue, and Google lost another ruling along these lines in, um, I think, in Pennsylvania. And I don't know what Facebook does, uh, but clearly lots of courts are looking at this. The Second Circuit is the most influential one that's um, ruled, but uh, does it seems to be in the minority at the moment. Yeah, so it looks like it's shaping up for... Uh uh, two competitors to dig in and and uh, and potentially do conflict with one another. 
Well, so maybe turning to another similar story, uh, looking at uh, what's going on on the Korean Peninsula these days. Um, so there's an interesting article uh, in the Times from David Sanger and William Broad uh, floating the hypothesis uh, that the U.S., was uh, successfully interfering uh, with North Korea's most recent missile launches. The article entitled Hand of U.S. Leaves North Korea's Missile Program Shaken. So no kind of uh, 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 ambiguity about where the authors seem to stand. And, and they, they go through an interesting analysis of, uh, of kind of looking at the percentage of missile launches that have failed since uh, the since an apparent covert American program was quote accelerated three years ago to try to um, interfere with the North's ability to develop this type of technology. Uh, and of course, they do the the typical um, uh, uh, disclaimers that it's nearly impossible to tell if any individual launch is the victim of a new innovative approach. Uh, and that, of course, things like bad welding, bad parts, bad engineering, and bad luck can all play a role in such failures. Uh, but they, they point to the high failure rate uh, associated with uh, the efforts to launch the Musadan missile, uh, an intermediate-range missile, not the largest in North Korea's arsenal. Um, but what distinguished it uh, is that it is kind of truck portable and able to uh, to kind of be moved around the country, making it more easy to hide, uh, more easy to target, or more difficult and more difficult to target. Uh, and if you read through the article, uh, then uh, you're kind of struck by a couple of the points. In fact, uh, particularly that um, last year the North conducted eight flights, uh, attempted flights of the Musadan, and only one succeeded, uh, which uh, the authors uh, give kind of the missile and overall failure rate of 88%. Uh, so an interesting point, uh, Jeffrey Lewis then, writing in Foreign Policy, uh, seeks to debunk the entire concept, and, uh, uh, and that, in fact, uh, when the reality of the lack of a quick solution to the North Korea problem becomes evident, people, quote, turn to rumor and fantasy. Uh, and though although the U.S. is undoubtedly interested in, uh, in interfering with North Korea's uh, computer networks and its missile systems, uh, that the numbers really don't bear this out. North Korea's missiles really aren't falling at, uh, at a rate that would suggest uh, successful interference. Um, in fact, Jeffrey Lewis goes so far as to say that if the United States is hacking North Korean missiles, it's doing a crap job of it. Um, that three quarters of the launches since 2014 have succeeded. Um, 66 missile launches, 51 uh, went right, and that the 15 that failed were really concentrated on uh, on new systems, not just the Musadan, but also uh, a submarine-launched ballistic missile, um, an unidentified intercontinental ballistic missile, uh, and a new anti-ship missile, and that kind of the mainstays of North Korea's arsenal, uh, the Scud and the Nodong, uh, work just fine. Uh, and of course, as you're testing new systems, they're expected to fail 
at a higher rate. Uh, and you can look at the U.S. missile uh, program going back several decades and, and see the same thing. Uh, so an interesting theory put forth by enterprising reporters at the, at the New York Times, uh, but, uh, but potentially uh, successfully debunked by our friends at Foreign Policy. All right, so let's leave the Korean Peninsula. I'm sorry, go ahead, Maury. Well, I was just going to say, you know, probably it's going to be very hard to know which is the truth. Uh, but the Trump administration, it seems to me, has more incentive than previous administrations to let it be believed, at least, that this was a U.S. Um, action, given the position that the president has taken on North Korea. Although I don't think uh, we'll get any definitive government position one way or another, whether there was U.S. involvement in this. Yes, I think that's right. I think there is definitely an interest in uh, projecting power and projecting uh, capability uh, and, and, and using that, that kind of um, sense of projection to try to alter behavior. Uh, we'll see if that's a successful uh, effort, and we'll also see if... Um, uh, if you can sustain such an effort over time, uh, if each successive activity uh, kind of gets debunked. So anyway, leaving the Korean Peninsula and coming back to uh, to Europe, uh, the Article 29 Working Party uh, issued a statement on uh, the European Commission's uh, proposed e-privacy regulations. Uh, Mori, anything interesting in this? Well, I'm glad we're back to Europe. I think I'm in Europe. I'm sitting in London's Russell Square today. Um, whether with Brexit this is actually Europe, I'm not sure. But I was going to say you've got at least another what, year, year and a half of being Europe until you're uh, you're back on yeah. the island. Yeah. So with the e-privacy uh, regulation, yeah. So as our listeners will probably know, the EU adopted the new General Data Protection Regulation last year. Uh, which will replace the Data Protection Directive, effective May of next year, uh, accompanying the Data Protection Directive with respect to certain aspects of electronic community, communications is an e-privacy directive, which has now been uh, proposed to be replaced by an e-privacy regulation, which means, like the General Data Protection Regulation, an instrument that will automatically be applicable across the EU without implementation like a directive, the Article 29 Working Party, which is a body of European uh, Data Protection Commissioners created under the Data Protection Directive, has taken a look at the draft of the regulation, and they, which was released um, earlier this year, I believe, in January. And they said, generally, we like it. Um, we're really happy it's extended uh, e-privacy regulation to over-the-top providers, um, you know, the likes of uh, Skype and, and Facebook. Um, messenger services that provide cost communications over the Internet, um, which is a big issue for these companies. Um, they like it that there's broader coverage of content and metadata. They like it that anonymization remains at the center of, of, the, uh, of the regulation, which has been a trend in European law. They're critical. It doesn't go far enough. And since Stuart's not here, I'll you know say on his behalf that he would be sure that this is a targeting primarily of U.S. providers like the OTC providers that it's extended to. And they said it doesn't go far enough on things like location uh, tracking, control of location tracking, 
for analysis of content and metadata. So, uh, and this, the Article 29 Working Party tends to be very um, protective of privacy, and we're seeing that here. Interesting. So any surprises in anything that the Working Party said? I don't think there are terrible surprises, except um, maybe just the general flavor that uh, there's, there's a feeling that the, this group of data protection regulators wants to create a detailed code of conduct for Internet marketing and data management. So, you know, they want detailed standards on how you use metadata, detailed standards on location tracking. And they'd like this to go in an EU-wide regulation. Um, and I don't think that it's likely that the final regulation would go as far as this opinion suggested. But that could be the direction we're heading, which means that uh, it, it's, as EU privacy law tends to be painful for multinational providers of communication services, but also bad, in my view, for the development of European technology businesses because Europe is not a great place to, to found an Internet company as a result of this very regulatory approach. Yeah, no, well, it'll be interesting to see how this plays itself out. So coming back to uh, uh, to the U.S. Um, and, uh, uh, and an interesting kind of uh, evolution of the administration's views uh, on WikiLeaks, uh, it seems that uh, the Justice Department uh, is looking again uh, at whether it uh, can and should bring criminal charges against members of the WikiLeaks organization. Uh, so, of course, uh, our, our listeners are, are quite familiar uh, with um, uh, with WikiLeaks. Uh, there was a decision taken uh, during the Obama administration uh, that at the end of the day, WikiLeaks looked more like uh, a media organization uh, than anything else, and that trying to prosecute uh, WikiLeaks would uh, form a bad precedent for the pre- for the prosecution uh, of media organizations. Now, if I channel Stewart for a moment, he would be the first to point out that the Obama administration didn't have any problem at uh, prosecuting individual journalists. Um, but leaving that aside, uh, obviously the Trump administration, when it was still the Trump campaign, uh, maybe indicated some fondness uh, for WikiLeaks uh, during the campaign, given that it was uh, uh, leaking information, uh, that salacious information about uh, uh, about uh, the, the the campaign's political opponents. Um, but now, having been the victim of more recent leaks, particularly the revelation of uh, of sensitive CIA cyber tools, uh, the Justice Department is back at re-examining. That question, and I think that, uh, of course, you can look at um, the statements of the new CIA director, uh, Mike Pompeo, uh, that uh, WikiLeaks is essentially uh, a non-state hostile intelligence service, often abetted by state actors like Russia. So that's getting pretty close to the idea that. Um, th- that WikiLeaks is essentially uh, not a media organization, but a hostile actor. Now, uh, 
in the words of uh, of our colleague uh, Michael Vadis, who was actually interviewed for uh, one of the stories uh, that has come out on this issue, uh, the challenge is going to be what role WikiLeaks played uh, in the actual hacking rather than publishing the results of the hacking. So if they were involved in the planning, uh, or as some have argued, uh, if they are truly an arm of Russian military intelligence um, and working together to identify uh, types of information that would be useful to obtain and then to publish, um, then you're not simply looking at uh, a question of first of the First Amendment right of, uh, of media organizations or the First Amendment's prohibition on the government from from prosecuting media organizations for uh, for, uh, for publishing information that had been provided to them and, and into something a little bit more uh, nefarious. I'm curious, uh, uh, Maury, whether the 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 perspective or opinion on on WikiLeaks and and Julian Assange has changed uh, in Europe as well. No, I think he's probably um, look. I don't think that there would be any efforts to prosecute him over here for what he's published. Um, you know, there was obviously the Swedish going after him for sex offenses. Whether that was true or not. He's a controversial figure, but I, I haven't seen any big change over here. And frankly, the, this idea that the U.S. might prosecute him reminds me of what happened in the 1990s with Bill Zimmerman when he published PGP code and the U.S. government talked about prosecuting him um, and you know, it fell down on First Amendment grounds. Um, I think if this is shading into it being a media organization, then it's going to fall down on similar grounds here, but I agree with, you know, you and, and what you stated that Michael said, that if, you know, there's other associated conduct, that would be where they would have to go. Yeah, and inevitably it seems to tie back again to this question of uh, kind of the Russian involvement in information warfare and, and other activities aimed at uh, the 2016 U.S. election um, and what the true nature of the relationship uh, between uh, between Russia and its intelligence services on the one hand and WikiLeaks on the other. So there's also uh, kind of an interesting question of the dog that, that didn't bark, um, kind of a lack of a Trump administration response on Privacy Shield. Maury, thoughts on this? Yeah, there's a lot of people in Europe who don't, like the privacy shield, you know, the, the uh, safe harbor fell down in the Schrems case, and a lot of people think that the privacy shield still isn't good enough, um, and that has led to, you know, either trying to shore it up or raise concerns, has led to some questions from the European Commission to the Trump administration about how data that's going to the United States is being used, and it there hasn't been a response. And that itself doesn't um, mean that the privacy shield is about to fall over because the privacy shield has been properly approved over here and it can stay in place until there's a decision of the European Court of Justice that overturns it or individual national regulators that somehow make it difficult to use in individual EU member states. But uh, the, the failure to respond, I think, gives ammunition to the people who say that uh, this wasn't a good deal, that the U.S. authorities aren't cooperating. 
uh, and it could take the privacy shield um, in a bad direction. Yeah, it would be interesting to see, uh, again, how this administration chooses to approach each of these kind of legacy arrangements uh, that were made to kind of find that fine balance with uh, the Europeans uh, over privacy issues and, of course, how uh, Brexit and similar uh, similar movements kind of impact that as well. Uh, so, uh, as you noted, uh, potentially not the level of certainty that industry would have liked to see around, around how these issues are going to be dealt with uh, uh, from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, I mean, the privacy shield originally required a tremendous effort by the Department of Commerce to get it through and also some significant um, commitments by the State Department and intelligence uh, agencies about what the U.S. would do. Um, long letters that were written that are part of the privacy shield package. It's very difficult to imagine this administration um, engaging in that kind of confidence building with the Europeans. So while the existing package, which is legacy from the Obama administration, is still there, if it comes under, you know, if, if there are serious um, negotiations to uh, or serious questions raised about getting rid of it or whether it should remain valid, it may be hard, it may be a lot harder to reach the same kind of accommodation uh, that the Obama administration did, uh, which is, as you noted, what industry would like to see. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. So, and then finally, uh, some uh, maybe time to double back and give a little update on uh, the efforts uh, primarily driven out of Europe uh, to use export, to use dual-use export controls uh, to try to stem the uh, the sale and use of certain types of uh, uh, intrusion uh, software pa- and hardware packages uh, by particular governments and non-governmental organizations against uh, political dissidents and, and activists. For those who uh, who have followed along with this story, you know that uh, there is a 41-country voluntary arrangement called the Vasna Arrangement, uh, which has existed for uh, for for many years uh, to try to harmonize. Uh, approaches among the countries to uh, items subject to dual-use export controls. And this really originates with um, items to be controlled for in order to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons and, and things of that nature. It's been applied then out uh, elsewhere to conventional munition uh, types of weapons and, and other, other dual-use items as opposed to solely the military-use items. Uh, in 2013... The Vassanar arrangement adopted uh, a set of, uh, of list-based controls on uh, intrusion software, uh, which was really trying to reach uh, a pretty specific set of companies, uh, companies like Vupen, FinFisher, Hacking Team, which sell kind of <clears throat> packages of software and hardware and technology to law enforcement agencies and intelligence services and others uh, to conduct uh, uh, network intrusion and surveillance activities, um, typically pursuant to their legal mandates. Um, concern uh, rose, though, that some of these systems were getting into the hands of either governments uh, that that 
particular groups, uh, particularly civil society organizations, didn't like, and that those governments were then using those tools not so much to carry out lawful uh, law enforcement purposes, but rather to spy on political opponents uh, or uh, activists uh, or others, kind of contrary to what the tools were designed uh, to be used for. Uh, so in an effort to try to get at this problem, um, many organizations made a push uh, in 2013 to include these under dual-use export controls. The problem, of course, is that this software and hardware and technology looks a lot like the types of tools uh, that are used for cyber defensive purposes and other types of le- legitimate desirable activity like uh, data prevent, uh, protection, data integrity, uh, network availability, other things of that nature. And so uh, efforts have been underway by industry uh, and actually together with civil society uh, to try to get the, the countries of the Vassanar arrangement to uh, go ahead and modify those controls to uh, first to eliminate them if possible, since they largely reach uh, uh, defensive cybersecurity activities and, and have shown difficulty in reaching uh, those actual those systems that are designed specifically for these purposes and that are that are being sold uh, in any event. Uh, and, and if they can't be withdrawn, then at least to narrow them to those specific types of, of systems that, uh, that are being uh, thought of. It's a kind of a traditional governmental challenge of uh, there's, two, there's a particular type of thing that I'm trying to prevent, but because I can't name the company specifically or I don't want to accidentally limit myself, let me come up with a definition that could cover potentially anything that I would, uh, I would want to cover, but that ends up uh, with enormous scope creep. Uh, so uh, last year, in 2016, uh, the United States led an effort to, to modify those uh, those provisions, uh, which uh, resulted in some minor modifications around the edges at the end of the negotiating year. Uh, this year, 2017, another round of negotiations is underway um, with similar uh, discussions going on. What's interesting, though, is at the same time, uh, the EU introduced proposed uh, changes to its dual-use export controls, uh, and these have gone even further than what was proposed and adopted at Vassenaar. Uh, so, uh, so a set of, of controls proposed for, uh, for items relating to cyber, security, cyber surveillance technology uh, that includes not only intrusion software, but also monitoring centers, lawful intercept and data retention systems, uh, and digital forensics, uh, and, and would, would create an entire category of these other items of cyber surveillance technology uh, that could then be populated with other items beyond those that are even listed. Now, uh, so this leads to kind of a two-track problem of trying to narrow the scope of the of the already enacted Vassenaar arrangement provisions, uh, while also trying to influence the various bodies uh, in the European governmental decision-making process. Uh, that again, if you that the intrusion software provisions of Vassenaar have been been ineffective in. Uh, in uh, controlling the export of these types of systems and technologies, broadening out uh, this type of approach um, is likely only to lead to to more unintended consequences. Uh, And so April saw uh, uh, several activities along uh, this line, including hearings for the European Parliament, uh, uh, the first negotiating sessions of the 2017 
Vassenaar arrangement uh, negotiations, which take place in, in Vienna, Austria every year. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, and a number of other efforts aimed at uh, trying to narrow out these provisions. So stay tuned for future developments. But uh, what looked originally as if it was uh, a challenge for industry and civil society focused on these uh, dual-use export controls uh, through the Vassenaar arrangement now has kind of opened up an entirely new front uh, within the EU decision-making process uh, on what looks like an even further expanded uh, approach to using export controls to try to control these technologies, uh, but also hopefully an opportunity uh, to narrow down and focus uh, these controls on specifically what uh, the governments and, and industry and civil society all see as, uh, as problematic uses and not have all of the collateral impacts uh, that the, that the Vassenaar uh, controls have seemed to prove out. I don't know, what, Maury, if you've had any, have any thoughts on, uh, on that issue. Well, as you just proved, Alan, you're, um, you're the expert on this, and I know you've been spending a lot of time on it. I would offer just a couple of thoughts. One, uh, not on the details, but, you know, as Stuart would say, again, this is probably a political, uh, uh, politically driven thing in part because of where the companies are. You know, a lot of cybersecurity companies in the United States, uh, Israel is another huge place for it, but Europe, while it has a good cybersecurity industry, it's not, it's not a leader, and that probably influences the fact that the European controls are stronger. Um, the other comment is, you know, I've lived through the encryption wars over the past 20 years, and that's another one that was all about export controls until the, about 1999, encryption was strictly restricted. That was completely liberalized. We're going the other way here. But, you know, at the same time, people are worried about the going dark problem with encryption, um, although I don't think that's going to relate in any export controls. It's interesting to see the similarity of how these battles sometimes spill over from the communication space to the export control space. Yeah, definitely, and and not necessarily to the benefit of uh, of those proposing the uh, the regulations. Uh, I mean, I think the, the com- it's commonly understood that the encryption uh, regime didn't do a lot to help the the European IT industry. And in this instance, you know, many of the the companies of concern, again, the whether it's Vupen or Fufi- uh, <laughs> Vupen or Finfisher or Hacking Team, these are European companies uh, that, in some instances, have been able to continue to to export. Uh, their tools and their their kind of suite and package of, of services uh, to governments of concern, even though these controls have been in place. So, uh, so more to watch on that front. Uh, so that's all of our time for today. Thanks so much, Maury, for joining us. Uh, this has been Episode 161 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget, if you suggest a guest interviewee and they join us on the show, uh, we'll send you a highly coveted Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast mug. Uh, so send your suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, coming up, we'll be joined by Mike Schmidt. Uh, a leader in the effort to articulate the law of armed conflict in cyberspace known as Talon 2.0, uh, and by Tim Moore, who has written a, an influential Carnegie paper on banks, international regulation, and cyber attacks. So we hope that you'll join us once again as we provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.